Speaker, Yehuda Bauer, Founding Director of the Sassoon International Center for the Study of Antisemitism at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, former Director of the International Institute for Holocaust Research at Yad Vashem. In the field of Holocaust research, he is one of those scholars whose work, more than 80 articles, more than a dozen books, is truly indispensable. In 1998, he was the recipient of two extraordinary honors. The first was the highest civilian award of the State of Israel on the 50th anniversary of its founding. Um, the second, and of course that award was for a lifetime of distinguished scholarship. The second was an invitation to speak before the German parliament on Yom HaShoah. And in that extraordinary address, which you can find, by the way, on the internet, he treated the Holocaust as a gigantic and terrible murder mystery. The mystery was not who did it, or how they did it, but why they did it. And the answer that he gave on that occasion was they did it because of an ideological fantasy, a paranoid fantasy about a satanic Jewish threat to humanity. Um, never before, he suggested, had so great, so massive a crime been perpetrated in the, the name um, of, a, of a complete fantasy. Well, um, in any case, he developed his argument further in a book that appeared in 2001. It's a book called Rethinking Antisemitism. Sorry, Rethinking the Holocaust. It gave us, in fact, the title for this conference. And that book um, is surely now the best guide to the controversies that have roiled this field in recent years. Where most historians, Morris Dick Stein noted in his New York Times review of the book, see the Holocaust from the angle of the Germans who conceived and executed it. Bauer, as an Israeli, is determined to integrate the perspective of the Jews, whom he portrays not simply as victims or objects of persecution, but as living principles with ever-diminishing choices as Eastern Europe turned into a vast prison house after 1941. His work makes the strongest case for the tact and insight of the historical imagination as it confronts the unimaginable. We are deeply honored to have him with us as the plenary speaker for this conference. Thank you for the introduction. Friends, actually I wanted to start exactly where you finished. Quite, quite, an, quite a, uh, a coincidence, because I fear very much that we are turning our conferences into conferences on anti-Semitism without Jews. We hear about Hungarians, we hear about Germans, we're going to hear about others. But, you know, Jews were not just victims, they were not just objects. They were subjects. They thought something, they had a culture. They reacted. This way or that way. They understood or misunderstood. Please, 
Let us not discuss anti-Semitism without Jews. The term anti-Semitism itself is a non-term. It was coined, as we all know, by Wilhelm Marr, a German journalist in 1879, for anti-Semitic reasons. Now, you see, when you talk about this term, it is so inappropriate. Because what it is supposed to mean is nationalist, racial, biological Jew hatred. And Mar, who was anti-Christian, wanted to distance himself from this Christian Jew hatred, Judenhass. What he wanted was to invent some kind of a term that wouldn't mention Jews, would be pseudo-scientific, scientific if you will, and would clearly distinguish that from what preceded it. The term itself, as we use it today, today, includes not only nationalistic and racial biological Jew hatred. It includes, in fact, all the baggage that was accumulated by Jew hatred throughout the centuries. To distinguish clearly between elements of racism, of nationalism, of Christian theological anti-Semitism, of economic and social Jew hatred, is practically impossible because it accumulates, it, it joins. So the term itself is not true. It doesn't reflect reality. But quite apart from that, what does it mean? Is there Semitism that you can be anti to? <laughs> there are Semitic languages. In Ethiopia, they speak Semitic languages. There are Indo-European languages, right? There are Ugro-Finnish languages. Now, can you be anti-Turco-Finnish? Can you be anti-Indo-European? It's the same logic as being anti-Semitic. But of course, what Mar meant was Jew hatred. He didn't mean Semites. He meant Jews. And everybody understood that. Now, what we do today is we commit the sin, the crime, if you will, of generalizing about this. From the Egyptian priest Maneto, a couple of centuries before the Christian era, who hated Jews because they were settling in Alexandria at that time, and kept their peculiar customs and habits, and of course a good Egyptian priest at that time wouldn't, wouldn't be able to, 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 to suffer that. From Maneto till today, uh, the Guardian in England. Uh, it's all, it goes all under the same name from xenophobia which doesn't single out Jews because if you hate foreigners then okay the Jews just are one kind of foreigner it's not really Jew hatred that's, that, that singles out Jews from the others to violent anti-Jewish propaganda and action it includes everything from theological Christian anti-Semitism to theological Muslim anti-Semitism to 
economic discrimination, which changes over periods of time. Marx was all wrong there, as he was in so many things. Antisemitism cannot be explained by economic causes only. And as this develops, you see, we are using the same term for completely different things, although there is a continuum. There is a connection, of course there is a connection. But a historian, a social scientist, has to differentiate. And we don't do that. Having said all that, I can say uh, with perfect clarity, maybe, hopefully, that Anglo-Saxon usage of that term is even more nonsensical than the German original. Because you spell anti-Semitism according to Webster Dictionary, anti-capital-S-Semitism. At least in German it was anti-Semitismus, which was one word. In Hebrew it's anti-Semitism, it's also one word. It's slightly less idiotic. <laughs> but when you, have, when you have in English, and when I write my books or my articles, and I write anti-Semitism, at least that, you know, in one word, the copy editor says, no, 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 no. And I say, I don't want to publish my book with anyone who doesn't accept my spelling of anti-Semitism. <laughs> Please copy that. <laughs> It makes a mess of research projects. It causes endless misunderstandings. And having said all that, let me use it. Because I don't have any other word, what can I do? At least in Hebrew we have something which is still used, which is very useful, namely, hatred of the Jews in, in Hebrew, Sinat Israel. And, and we, we can use that. We don't, by the way, we use anti-Shemiot all the time. <laughs> but in English you don't have that. Jew has it. doesn't really sound nice. <laughs> because in a in good society, you don't mention the word Jew. So Jew hatred is out. So you use anti-Semitism. And as I said, I'm going to use it. Now in that center that Dr. Thompson mentioned, uh, the International Center for the Study of Antisemitism at Hebrew University, we all like these long names, it makes a much better impression. Um, we conducted research on post-Holocaust antisemitism. And Dr. Simcha Epstein, one of our collaborators, came up with a fascinating theory which I think to my mind at least, he has more or less proved. And that is that at least post-Holocaust anti-Semitism comes in waves. Fascinating, fascinatingly enough, in Western society, so-called Western society, Western civilization. Let me introduce there a, uh, a very funny story in this very unfunny subject, uh, which I heard, by the way, uh, on the West Coast, where else? Uh, that uh, Gandhi, when he was conducting these endless negotiations about Indian uh, independence in the 1930s, went to London in 1937, and Gandhi being Gandhi, he was dressed, you know, 
as Gandhi. Or to be dressed with a stick going and sandals going into Whitehall. And then he lost his way there because he, he, he never bothered to ask where this meeting was supposed to take place. And he was wandering in these endless corridors and suddenly in one of the rooms he found himself confronted with a young BBC uh, man. 37, you know, with his paraphernalia, those big things, the microphones. And this young man suddenly found himself opposite the great Gandhi. And an interview was possible. Will you, would you please grant me an interview? And Gandhi being Gandhi said, okay, fine. So he put up this machinery and the paraphernalia and all that. And then, of course, he didn't know what to ask because he, hadn't been, he wasn't prepared for this. And he asked, Mahatma, what do you think about Western civilization? <laughs> and Gandhi answered, I think it would be a good idea. <laughs> so you see, when you talk about Western civilization, what exactly do you mean? But you do mean, don't you, Europe, the Americas, and by sort of uh, expanding this a bit, all kinds of other places, rather populous places in the world as well. And it turns out that in, the, in this Western civilization, from Stockholm to Buenos Aires, and from uh, uh, Kamchatka uh, to, I don't know where, San Francisco, anyway, there were three waves of anti-Semitism since 1945. 1958-60, approximately 1968-72-3, and then 1987-1992, and the fourth one we are in at the moment. The fascinating thing about that is that they took place at the same time. When you, in other words, there was no center, there was no uh, uh, anti-Semitic world center that, that, that organized this. It arose suddenly, out of seemingly nowhere. Desecration of cemeteries, attacks on synagogues, uh, pamphlets, uh, threats, uh, so on and so forth. And it rose and it subsided. And the reasons seem to be quite different in each case. Economic downturns, well, sometimes yes, sometimes no. Political crisis, well, sometimes yes, sometimes no. Social crises of some kind, possibly. We haven't really investigated the root properly. We are just at the beginning of this. And you see, the theory that I would like to present to you, it's a hypothesis, I may be totally wrong, is that there is a cultural underlying problem there. Antisemitism is not a uh, kind of thing that you can monocausally explain. It is not a prejudice. It is a cultural phenomenon embedded in so-called Western culture. It's like lava, like magma, underneath the Earth's surface. And when there is this weak spot on the Earth's surface, it explodes. Why do weak spots happen? Well, they do happen, don't they? So, the, the, the cause of 1999 anti-Semitism 
is not something that I will try to explain later seems to be the cause and in part it is. Those are triggers. The causes are much deeper, are under, underlie all this stuff. And now you see one has to say, all right, now you, you, you give us a sort of a general picture that's very nice and, and so on and so forth and uh, uh, Michael already, uh, Michael Carlo already saw this. Uh, this is part of the thing. I have to take off my jacket because I'm getting too hot. Um, and uh, what I want to say as a basic question is what causes antisemitism? And you see, there are libraries written about antisemitism. But the root cause of antisemitism is something that you find in an old article or maybe in a one but that is really what we are after, aren't we? What causes this? Why the Jews? And the short answer, because uh, uh, fortunately for you, my time is limited, <laughs> is that anti-Semitism arises out of the fact that the Jews are neither better nor worse but their culture, their civilization is different. Different from what? Different originally from the cultures and civilizations of the areas where the Jewish people began developing as a people. Why? Well, this civilization which arose according to the latest findings which Later findings may again overturn. You know how these things operate. The Jewish people are a combination of some group that emerged from Egypt and others that were in the land of Israel and the Canaanites who fled from cities and settled in the mountains and that sort of thing. And then this gelled into a group with quite clear, clearly defined cultural tendencies. And the literature that was developed and part of which we have in the Bible, because part of, it, part of it, of course, never survived, is a development of ideas that came from outside. Monotheism wasn't invented by the Jews. It was invented by the Egyptians, but to a sun god, not to a universal god as later, as later Judaism. The Shabbat was not a Jewish invention, but a Babylonian invention, much earlier than the Bible. The word Shabbat, by the way, is Babylonian, not Hebrew. But the Jews developed it into a concept which was socially revolutionary. Not only free people have to observe one day of rest, but slaves animals, the earth itself. This was a reactionary idea in those days because if people took rest days off, how would you build the pyramids? How would you develop that wonderful Greek civilization without slavery at the bottom of it? And the Jews developed an idea, they didn't abolish slavery, you could manage with slaves, but there was a statement in principle against slavery in the Bible. 
and other kinds of social and economic uh, developments that you can follow through when you read the Bible carefully. Now, had the Jews remained where they were, engaged in acrobatic agriculture on the Judean hills, <laughs> they would have been just another odd group, you know. There were plenty of others like that, by the way. I mean, not like that, but also different from others. But they spread. And of course, we invent legends about ourselves. The Jews were uh, expelled from Palestine or the land of Israel, first by the Babylonians and then by the Romans. Nonsense. Forget it. Babylonians took some 17,000 top aristocrats and military people and expelled them, uh, deported them to Babylon. And the Romans took some 20 to 30,000 Jews as slaves and sold them on the markets of the Roman Empire. There was a Jewish majority in the land of Israel until the Arab conquest. So this is all nonsense, you see. But we, we of course, it's lovely nonsense. We love that. <laughs> the Jews are about as racially or nationally or... They use the word blood. Where did that come from? Uh, separate as Santa Cruz Street Poodle. <laughs> as pure. Because we are a mixture, just like anyone else, but we have the same culture. We inherited a civilization. We inherited a definite way of looking at the world. And of course, we quarrel amongst ourselves as to how to interpret that. And that's part of the civilization. That's part of the civilization. The Jews then spread. And when a society in which they live underwent a crisis, could be economic, could be social, could be whatever. It could turn against this group that was always a minority, but always pretty well known, very odd, different customs and habits, because you couldn't eat together with a Jew. He had, or she had, dietary laws. The Jews rested on a certain day and then other people developed and they fixed other days. The social contact was necessarily limited by that. In that kind of a situation, sometimes the frustrations and the disappointments of the people amongst whom the Jews lived turned against them. Sometimes. Not always. The history of the Jewish people, my friends, is not the history of their persecutions. Most times, in most places, Jews were not persecuted. They lived more or less tolerated, accepted, sometimes even welcomed. Sometimes just ignored. And yes, at a large number of points in this very, very long story, they were subject to persecution and to discriminations. There is a place in the Caucasus, for instance, in Georgia, where Jews have been, well, probably over 2,000 years. There were individual uh, anti-Semites, of course, like Yosef Vissarinovich Yugashvili, better known as Stalin, <laughs> or others. But there was never an anti-Semitic movement there. 
And there are other places where for long periods of time, Poland until the 16th century, for instance, Jews were accepted, welcomed. There are other places in Tunis, in other countries, in North Africa, in Europe, in other places, in Babylon. In Babylon. After they had been, that uh, elite was deported there, they settled on the land. There were Jewish villages, there was Jewish agriculture there. And there, of course, were the great learning centers of Sura and Tompadita. And there was no persecution that we know of. Yes, here and there were well, some problems, but nothing very real for many centuries. And yes, there were persecutions at the same time. You see, so you have to differentiate. This is a very delicate and complicated business. But it creates over a long period of time this snowball that adds itself constant, to itself constantly. That creates a cultural image that on occasion and very, you know, as we go along into the Middle Ages and the modern times, very often a problem appears, there is this minority there for different, for different reasons. They are then discriminated against and either driven out or persecuted and in some cases killed. Now, what is the second base of this kind of a magma? I think it is Christian anti-Semitism. Now, Christian anti-Semitism arises out of a family quarrel between two, between a Jewish sect led by the brother of Jesus in Jerusalem, which many of you, of course, know about, and the establishment, the Jewish establishment of the time. Jesus, of course, was a Pharisee, but he was a Pharisee who had very clear ideas how Phariseeism should be uh, changed. And the kind of new idea, I mean, he didn't see himself as anything more than a reformer. But when you look at what Christianity then became, it developed into a way of presenting the Jewish heritage to the non-Jewish world. St. Paul, of course, is the uh, major figure in, this, in that story. And in this family quarrel, you had to differentiate yourself from the Jews. Because if you accepted what the Jews were doing, then why should a Greek or a Roman accept this new idea of Christianity rather than its origin, Judaism? And Judaism, my friends, was a proselytizing religion until the 10th century, when the rabbi said, stop, don't proselytize anymore. And millions, millions of citizens of the Roman Empire joined the Jewish fold in the first century of the Christian era. And so Judaism was a real threat to this rising new religion, Christianity, that combined Greek beliefs with Judaic traditions. And it had to oppose the Jews, just as the Jews opposed the Christians. 
but more so because Christianity became the state religion. And in that kind of a development, Christian theology towards the Jews became a very complicated thing because the second coming of Christ was dependent not only today with the evangelical Protestants in this country, on the existence of Jews. Because the Jews had to convert to Christianity when Christ came. And if there were no Jews, Christ wouldn't come. So there was a problem. So yes, persecute the Jews, yes, discriminate against them, yes, don't kill them. Saint Augustine. And this was repeated. Now, the kind of vituperation against the Jews that you find in the Church Fathers, Cyprian, Origen, John Chrysostom of the Golden Tongue, this kind of vituperation is, you, you think you are reading the Sturmer. But yes, no, you mustn't kill them. Which is not observed always, you know. Occasionally this gets out of hand. And then the popes in the Middle Ages have to defend the Jews from the result of their own incitement against them. And the bishops. And they have to do it because the theology doesn't permit genocide. Christianity never developed a genocidal policy towards the Jews. Discrimination, yes. Genocide, no. That was left to modern anti-Christian, secular, national, racist, biological ideology. Now, what happened during the Holocaust? I won't go into the background of the Holocaust, the, the, the ideology, and so on and so forth. This has been done very often, there's plenty of material on that, plenty of literature. But, you know, let me again come to terminology. Holocaust and the Hebrew word Shoah are inappropriate terms for what happened. Holocaust, of course, is, you know, the sacrifice, the whole sacrifice uh, to God. Nobody sacrificed Jews to God in the Holocaust. And Shoah really means a natural disaster. It was not a natural disaster. And so both terms are wrong. What we mean is the genocide of the Jews. Now, why is that genocide different from other genocides? First of all, there are parallels with other genocides. And the Holocaust has this peculiarity about it, that it's both a specific event, very specific, to a specific people for specific reasons at a specific time, and therefore comparable to other genocides. And anyone here who will say the Holocaust must not be compared to other genocides, I will totally disagree with. You cannot argue about the specificity of the Holocaust unless you compare it with other genocides. And anyone who deals with the Holocaust and does not compare it to other genocides is not doing his or her job. And yet, uh, dialectically, if you will, if you don't like Marx, go back to the, to the Greeks, it's all the same. Uh, the, the idea that the Jews were murdered 
during that period of time in a way that differed materially, substantively, from other genocides and yet was parallel to, the, to other genocides is something that one has to absorb. And I would say, very briefly, there are five distinctive uh, factors in the Holocaust. The totality, the idea that every single Jew, rather, every person defined as a Jew by the perpetrators, should be identified, registered, humiliated, expropriated, concentrated, <coughs> transported, and murdered. Never happened before in human history. The fact that this was a universal, universalist ideology. Not Jews in Germany, Poland, Soviet Union, North Africa, wherever. Have orgies everywhere. It didn't start like that. It developed into that in 42, 43. <coughs> Never before. And the ideology, which Dr. Thompson mentioned from my Bundestag speech, but which in that same book, that's now the commercial, the, uh, in that same book, Rethinking the Holocaust, you will find uh, uh, sort of defined more closely than I can do it here. The idea, namely, that there was a non-pragmatic, non-pragmatic, purely ideological, in Marxist terms, in, in Marxist terms, superstructure. It was something, you see, where uh, the Germans, uh, for instance, in Berlin, and, and by the way, I'm using Germans, uh, uh, not Nazis, because by 1942-43, it's Germans, uh, had still 69,000 Jews in Berlin. And 16 to 17,000 of them were working in armaments factories in and around Berlin. And of course, in January 1943, as you all know, Stalingrad and the defeat of the German army. And, by, and of course, immediately after that, the Germans began to look for armaments everywhere they could to develop armaments that they had to, to defend themselves against the advancing Bolsheviks. And so on the 27th of February 1943, they go into these factories and, and, and so on, and they take out uh, 60 to 70,000 Jews, add their families to, the, to them, and send them to Auschwitz to be killed. And I'm asking you, is that uh, capitalistic, cost-effective, modern? <laughs> My colleague Sigmund Baumann, the sociologist, uh, ex-Marxist uh, from Poland and now retired professor of sociology in England. He says that the Holocaust can be explained by modernity. And I'm asking, is that modern? And I can give you any number of examples of this kind of... This is pure anti-Semitic ideology. But anti-Semitism, Nazi anti-Semitism, is a mutation. It's a racist ideological mutation, which can persist, of course, it does persist. It is not the same as pre prior anti-Semitism. It is not the same as the anti-Semitism of the countries that we will be discussing here. 
It is perhaps closest, and somebody mentioned it already, to the Romanian version. Because in Romania there was a development of this kind of thought before World War I. Now you see, when you look at that uh, uh, third element of the, uh, the specificity of the whole, you have to add a fourth. The national socialist system itself, and because that doesn't really uh, belong to our topic here, let me be very brief about that. Communism is something that has been with humans for a very long time. The idea, namely, of replacing one social stratum with others. We had it in the French Revolution, the bourgeois instead of the feudals. We had it in other cases. Communism is another version of this, very dangerous one, but another version. <laughs> to replace one religion by another religion, we've had it all the time. But here we have something new. A utopian, a utopia based on a racial hierarchy. And races don't really exist. Recent anthropological research has shown, probably, you know, I'm not an anthropologist, but I just read that stuff, that we all come from Africa, originally. So I, I see many sort of pale faces around <laughs> That's because some of us have spent a very long time in northern climates. But actually, we all come from Africa. And so race is really pseudoscience, pseudo-invention. But these inventions get hold of people's minds. They become embedded in them. They are very important then. They become an ideology. And Nazism tried to create a new world order. The world order of a racial hierarchy. And that was something new. And I think that this distinguishes National Socialism from what preceded it and from what followed it. It's not fascism. It's something else. And National Socialism is, to my mind, the only real revolutionary attempt against civilization in the 20th century. And it is that uh, unprecedentedness that I think explains to a large extent the unprecedentedness of Nazi policies towards the Jews. And the fifth element are the Jews themselves. Because the Jews are the most ancient continuing civilization in the world as far as I know. A contemporary Chinese intellectual cannot read what was written 1000 before the Christian era in ancient Chinese. And in India, Sanskrit is no longer spoken. But my grandchildren can read what was written 3000 years ago without a dictionary. Now let some Englishman try that with Chaucer. <laughs> if 200 years ago a Christian peasant in Europe had a book, it was a Bible, 
it, com it, was compri it comprised two books, the Old and the New Testament. <coughs> it was a center of his civilization. And both the Old and the New Testament were written largely by Jews. And so when somebody attacks civilization, it is not so illogical to attack the Jews because they are the cultural survivors of something that you want to attack and replace. In all this anti-Semitism, as I'm sure you understood, plays a very central role. Now back to 1945 and the sequel to that. The Holocaust created an unease about the Jews, especially, of course, in Europe, where people have to live with close to six million ghosts created by this deadly mutation of European culture. As the famous saying goes, the Europeans, and not necessarily only the Germans, cannot forgive the Jews for Auschwitz. Just like contemporary Europeans cannot forgive the Americans for having rescued them from Hitler first and from Stalin. In the post-1945 world, periods of self-accusation and beating of breasts alternate with periods in which everything is done to turn the Jews into perpetrators. Nowadays, even Nazis, in order to liberate the heirs of European culture from the burden of the genocide. The establishment of Israel caused a widespread feeling of relief on the one hand. We don't have to bother about the Jews anymore. They have made good. They are wonderful. They will create a new Christianity for us, or a new socialism, a humanistic, idealistic society that will bring salvation to a sick world. The kibbutz and the moshav, the Weizmann Institute of Science, the Hebrew University, and Yitzhak Perlman took the place of the Christian savior and provided an alternative to Stalin's communism. On the other hand, Israel turned the victims into perpetrators, David into Goliath, and when occasion arose, everything was and is done to identify Israel with evil. In both cases, Israel is singled out a collective deity or a collective Satan. As a collective entity, the Jews are never equal to others, positively or negatively. Now, the Arab-Israeli conflict and now the Israeli-Palestinian confrontation provide ample material for an anti-Semitism that sees itself as anti-Zionist and not anti-Jewish. Indeed, one can be, in theory at least, anti-Zionist without being anti-Semitic. But only if one says that all national movements are evil and all national states should be abolished. But if one says that the Fijians have a right to independence and so do the Malays or the Bolivians, but the Jews have no such right, then one is anti-Jewish. And as one singles out the Jews for nationalistic reasons, one is anti-Semitic with a strong suspicion of being racist. My colleague Irving Kotler from Canada 
has stated many times that the international community as expressed in the United Nations and its commissions and committees singles out Israel as a pariah nation and that the status of the collective Jew, that is Israel, is akin to the status of the individual Jew in the Middle Ages. Not that there is not just cause to criticize Israel, quite the contrary. Israel is locked in a bitter struggle with Palestinian nationalism, and that nationalism is, to my mind, no less legitimate than the Jewish one. Palestinian terrorism has been defined, rightly, as crimes against humanity by international human rights groups. And Israeli policies on the West Bank and the Gaza Strip are mainly reactive, reactions to Palestinian terrorism. But these reactions do cause very serious violations of human rights and result in terrible suffering of the local population. Compromises that were suggested failed and seem currently impossible of achievement as both sides are ruled by elites that oppose any compromise that would be acceptable to the other side. However, anti-Semitic latency in the West lashes onto that tragic dispute in order to brand the Jews as mass murderers and Nazis in order to solve the social psychological problem caused by the Holocaust. Facts do not matter. The total number of Palestinian victims of the Second Intifada since September 2000 until today is about 2,300, which is about one-fifth of the daily number of Jews shipped to Auschwitz from Hungary in the spring of 1944. Some 800 Jews were killed by Palestinian terrorists, mostly civilians. Any kind of simplistic comparison becomes totally ridiculous. In Janine, a United Nations Commission, which the Israeli government in its stupidity opposed, found that there were probably 58 Palestinian dead and 23 Israelis. You cannot compare this to the Kashmiri or Sri Lankan or Sudanese situations, never mind World War II. The reason for the vile attacks on Jews in Western Europe is not based on any consideration of facts, but on these basic civiliza civilizational trends that latch themselves onto real events in a distorted manner. A realistic approach would, in my humble view, sharply criticize Israel in the context of its justified defense against terrorist suicidal homicide and seek a compromise between two national movements fighting over a very small piece of real estate. But we are not talking about a realistic approach. We are talking about anti-Semitism. It appears that in the present fourth wave of anti-Semitism since 1945 in the West, already said what I mean by the West, is a basically upper middle class intellectual phenomenon. It is widespread in the media, in universities, and in well-manicured circles. Typical is a statement of the French ambassador to Britain at a cocktail party, later reported in the British press, referring to Israel with typical diplomatic politeness and finesse as their shitty little country. <laughs> what is important here is not the statement itself, but the fact that that gentleman felt, per felt perfectly at ease, making it in an environment he was sure would understand and appreciate it. It is the atmosphere, the ambience that is important. 
students at a number of American universities identify with the Palestinian struggle without really knowing the facts of the situation. I'm also pro-Palestinian. I believe that they deserve independence and prosperity, but I also believe that their armed struggle consists largely of acts of barbarity and inhumanity that in turn causes inexcusable behavior on our part. The point is that many students cross the line from criticism of a government policy to anti-Semitism. You see, if I criticize Mr. Clinton or Mr. Bush, many Americans will see me as pro-American if they are anti-Clinton or anti-Bush. You can be perfectly legitimately anti any particular government in Israel against uh, Rabin or Barak or Perez on the one hand or against Sharon on the other hand. But when you deny the right of the community of Jews to have independence, you are not anti-Zionist, you are anti-Semitic, you are not anti-Israeli, you are anti-Semitic. There's a differentiation there. And people don't make it. It's very difficult to do. I admit that. But it's got to be done. Now, there are many who oppose these anti-Semitic trends. And one has to realize that there, is, there are certain, certain of these root causes, as I mentioned, that are weakening. Today, many Christian quarters are our allies in the struggle against anti-Semitism. Who would have imagined 80 years ago a statement by the Vatican, as it did in 1965, the Nostra Etate, where they said, well, the Jews didn't really, aren't really responsible for the killing of Jesus. I, as a Jew, I say, well, thank you very much, you know. <laughs> nice of you. But nevertheless, it is a tremendous advance. One should not disregard that. The same applies to some of the Protestant communities, certainly in Europe. Declarations by the Lutheran Church in 1980 in Germany, for instance, even by the Polish Church in January 1991, are indicative of this change of atmosphere. Now, it doesn't penetrate everywhere. It's disputed within the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. It's a long struggle. It's not over. It's far, far from evil. But there is a change there, and it was caused by the Holy so, from, from being the enemy, many of these groups, people, churches, individuals, become allies. Others don't. The Anglican Church, for instance, in England, is a center for anti-Semitic propaganda. The Bishop of Guildford, for instance, is an unreconstructed anti-Semite. Bishop Harris of Oxford is a different story. And so on. So, you go with the people who are friendly against the people who are unfriendly. You don't say all of them are bad as just as much as you don't say all of them are good. It depends what the particular individual or group says. It's not a matter of theology. You can, ex you can with the same theology, take completely opposing positions. Let me then summarize this Western part and say that this is a wave. I believe that that wave will pass. I can comfort those of you who disagree with me, but
by saying that very few of my predictions ever came true. <laughs> but uh, the, if it, if, in France, for instance, it's a very good example, as mentioned yesterday, I think, uh, mistakenly, because a year and a half ago there were a tremendous, there was a tremendous wave of attack on Jews. Turns out that practically all of these attacks were not made by French fascists, but by Muslims. So, uh, and then it declines. There have been very few, very, very few incidents in France in the last year. There's a leveling off. If there is a compromise on the Israeli-Palestinian issue, some kind of empiric compromise, some kind of easing of the tension, I have no doubt that the level of anti-Semitism in the West will decrease. Not disappear by any means, but will decrease. Will have, will have been taken out of the sales of many anti-Semites. Not all the way. Part of the way. All this, my friends, is a minor affair compared with the Nazi. You see, there are waves there. Going up, going down. In the Muslim radical camp. It's not waves. It's a linear development of a radical ideology which threatens the Jewish people with genocide, not persecution, not discrimination, with genocide. I know when I talk to American Jewish audiences, or for that matter to American Christian audiences, uh, we have a terrible problem in the United States. Anti-Semitism is rising. It's always rising. It's been rising for the past 50 years. It's actually declining. But the perception of the Jews, quite rightly, is paranoia. The fact that I'm paranoid doesn't mean that they are not after me. <laughs> and of course, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the, uh, the danger that was there before seems always to threaten. And in fact it does, but not from here, from elsewhere. And what people don't understand, governments don't understand, Jewish organizations don't understand, uh, people friendly to Jews don't understand, is that Western anti-Semitism, very unpleasant, dangerous, sure, is a minor affair compared to radical Islam. Radical Islam is not Islam. It's a mutation of Islam. Because Islam can be legitimately interpreted as a peace-loving, universalist uh, belief system. And uh, you see, where does it come out? On May 7, 2002, a program was broadcast on the Egyptian TV station Ikra'a, I-Q-R-A-A which is financed typically by Saudi money, amongst others by that great humanist prince Al-Wali bin Talal. The program was directed at Muslim women. A charming TV personality, Ms. Dua Amr, Egyptian, asked little Basmala, a three-and-a-half-year-old three girl, do you know who the Jews are? Yes. Do you like them? No. Why? Because they are monkeys and swine. 
and also because they tried to poison the wife of our prophet. Three and a half years old. And that is typical. Now what do, what, where, where are we at? The American administration is fighting Al-Qaeda. Now that's very good. But Al-Qaeda is one of dozens of radical Islamic organizations that have the same ideology as Al-Qaeda. And when you finally capture Mr. Bin Laden or Mr. Ayman al-Zawahiri or all the other greats of Al-Qaeda, you will have cut off one head of the Hijra and ten more will grow. Nobody except for Tom Friedman and a few others, academics, academics, you know, we are down in the street, the politicians are up on the ivory tower. <laughs> Asks, what do these people believe in and why? What do they believe in? Very briefly, I can tell you. It's all on the internet. It's all translated. They want world dominance. They believe in a future Islamic utopia of a world governed by Muslim clerics. And they say it. They want to abolish all political life. And I'm talking about the Sunni Muslims, not the Shiites. The Sunni Muslims. They want to abolish all political life because Political life means that people, humans, decide their fate. But Allah has already decided the fate of humanity through the Quran, through the traditions of the Prophet contained in the Hadith, through the law, the Islamic religious law of the Sharia, which was developed in the first century after the Prophet. And so there, all that needs to be done is to interpret the Sharia, the Hadith, and the Quran for the present, and you don't need politicians for that. You need clerics for that. Politicians to decide what the fate of a particular group should be is blasphemy. Humans decide, Allah should decide, Allah has already decided. They are against national states. They are against Arab national states. Hamas and Islamic Jihad in, in the Gaza Strip don't advocate a Palestinian nation they advocate an Islamic Palestine, part of a coalition of Islamic states that will rule the world. They are anti-Jewish and anti-Christian. The old medieval idea of Jews, also Christians, having a secure though second and third rate citizenship in a Muslim country has been abandoned by these people. Kill the Jews! And that, you see, is another central of radical Islam. Of course, the final aim is to, as I said, overthrow civilization. Because it's not just America or Europe. It's Japan. It's Taiwan. It's South Korea. It's increasingly now India. And in the future, China. And this is megalomania, you will say. Yes, it is a terribly dangerous. Can they do it? Well, the origin of this ideology lies in Egypt in the late 1920s and the main ideologue is, was a man by the name of Said Kutub. 
who spent two years in New York and came back to Egypt saying, Western civilization is decadent, I've seen it. It is declining. It is ready to be overthrown. In 1950, he wrote his basic tractate against the Jews. 17 years before the annexation of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip by Israel. So you see, to, to say that the solution of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict over the West Bank and the Gaza Strip will automatically disarm radical Islam is sheer nonsense. This was created 17 years before the Six-Day War. And you know, he wasn't so wrong. There is decadence in the West. There are less Russians, less Italians, less Germans, less French, less Scandinavians, etc., 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 and less Jews. A decline in population is a sure sign of a dangerous cultural, social situation. And there are other signs we don't have to mention because all of you know. And so the idea that radical Islam can actually overthrow this, crazy as it might sound, has at least some basis in sociological facts. Now, why don't we react to it? Now that's a very good question. I don't know the answer to that one. We bury our heads in the sand. Does that remind you of something? There are certainly big differences between radical Islam, Nazism, and communism. But there are some very potent parallels. All three were or are religions. Whether you pray to Saint Hitler or to Saint Stalin, or now to uh, the Quran and so on and so forth, those are religions, are quasi-religions. All three aspired or aspired to world domination. All three want the abolition of political life. All three turn against <coughs> the Jews because the Jews are the spearhead of the civilization they want to destroy. And so you see that danger exists. We tend to ignore it because we tend to ignore life-threatening things. The American policy of addressing this in purely military terms is, in my view, totally mistaken. Military, military action, sure, yes, when you have a clear target like Al-Qaeda, why not? But you can't defeat an ideology like that with weapons. You have to use other means as well. Not to exclude force, but to include other elements. First of all, ideology. You have to make unpleasant term propaganda. The Americans know how to do that. Radio Free Europe, <coughs> Voice of America, all kinds of other means. We have TV, we have radio, we have internet. We have tape recorder cassettes. That's how Khomeini made his revolution in Iran with radio tape cassettes. There are millions upon millions upon millions of non-radical Muslims. First and foremost, the Sufis, who are pacifists. And then, modernized, 
liberals, not too many of them, but they do exist. And we ought to help them organize. You and I cannot speak over radio to an Arab or Pakistani or other listener. Uh, uh, we need non-radical Muslims to do that, out of conviction, not because we pay them for it. And there are people. And nothing has been done in that direction. You knock at the doors of governments, including my own. The Israeli government has a forum on anti-Semitism, where I speak every, I think, four or five times a year. Now, all the organizations and, of course, the representatives of the Prime Minister, whoever the Prime Minister is, I've been speaking there since Rabbi. <laughs> and they all say to me, I've been singing the same songs for years now. And when I finish, they say, you are so right. And then they do absolutely nothing at all. We need to build coalitions. And that's the second thing. Political coalitions with non-radical Muslims, Muslim countries, Central Asian countries, maybe other countries, Indonesia, 200 million Muslims, led by a woman, Megawati Sukarno-Putri. She uh, is, of course, immediately identified as an anti-radical Muslim, because she's a woman. And a radical uh, Muslim, of course, will never recognize a woman governor. There are possibilities there of creating real coalitions. And then the uh, fourth thing, which is so crucial, force, ideology, politics, and economy. Where does this regression of the Muslim world come from? Because of a combination of factors of a non-development of capitalism, of individualism, of middle class. You can't have democracy without capitalism, you can't have capitalism without the middle class, you can't have a middle class without an intellectual development. And that was caused by a combination of local autocracies with reactionary clerics, with Western imperialism that penetrated into the Muslim world and utilized the autocracies and the conservative clerics in order to penetrate there and uh, economically and sometimes politically occupied regions. Now, they are in a retrogressive situation. Not all of them, but many of these societies. How will they get out of it? Egypt is growing by leaps and bounds in population. They don't know where to put them. They don't have any way to feed them. This is a breeding ground for this kind of radical Islam. The West thinks we will support them by sending them what? Money and arms. To who? To the governments that pocket that into, into the private pockets. These are corrupt dictatorial regimes, all of them. The only way to penetrate them is by a new approach, a new approach that would target the actual populations, the peasants and the small industries, the small entrepreneurs, to develop, not tomorrow morning, but over a period of time into something different from what they are today. It'll take time. You have to hold the ring in the meantime. But you have to have a clear concept of what you're doing. The Bushes and the Blairs and the Schroeders and the Chiracs and the Putins and the others, they know they have the information. They don't 
have the knowledge. Because they don't translate the information into something that can be used. And my last point, one has to differentiate even there. The Shia and the Sunni world are different. Let me quote to you something which I got because I'm connected to, you know, with all these things two days ago. Something that was uh, uh, broadcast uh, three days ago. From Sunni radical Islamist groups identified with the most radical element, Al-Qaeda and their, their cohort. The Jewish threat, they say, this threat has two aspects. The first is a Jewish plan based on religious motives to control Iraq. I'm sure you all know the religious motives first. <laughs> the second has to do with ending the Iraqi threat to Israel's existence. The secular threat. There is no doubt that one of the greatest threats to the hege hegemony of Islam and the dominance of the Sharia is the American secularism that will be imposed forcefully on the region. The Islamic world will change from dictatorship to democracy, which means subhuman degradation. Democracy means subhuman degradation in all walks of life. The meaning of the term democracy is that people rule instead of Allah, as he should. The Zionist Crusader coalition is encouraging large spiritual groups such as the Sufis, who are mostly infidels and believe in monism, pantheism, and reincarnation, and follow laws that appear in night dreams, wishful thinking, in conscience, which is a bad thing, inspiration, and other endless falsehoods. Orders such as the Sufis oppose jihad and do not oppose the infidels. When the Shia realize that the balance is tilting in favor of the Crusaders in Iraq, they rush to open the gates for them and to cooperate with them to control most of the southern cities. The Shia are the enemy. We should utilize that. We should utilize those splits within radical Islam. Do we do that? No. And so I end not on a terribly positive tone, but you know, when I say that uh, we are faced with a genocidal threat, somebody in the previous session asked, what did the Jews in Hungary know about what was happening in Poland before they themselves were deported? Another commercial, if you don't mind. I wrote a book about that. It's called Jews for Sale. It was published in this country seven years ago. And uh, in that I tried to prove that the Hungarian Jews, by and large, had the information. And as Professor Berend rightly said, not the knowledge. They did not translate it because there was no option. What could they have done? Where could they have run? What could they have, uh, what could they have done in that situation? But we are in a different situation now. We can translate the information into knowledge because we do have an option. The option is composed of a large number of points. We have the, we, the West, the civilization, including Japan and so on and so forth. We have the power, the economic power. The Jews cannot fight this alone. That's clear. 
But Israel is there. Israel is a very important player. And we have to create coalitions. We can't run it on our own. But we can run it together with others. Not because of our beautiful eyes. But because of a self-interest of a world that is threatened anew by a third ideological movement within 100 years that is genocidal and is an ex existential threat to all of us.